a series of land grabs and shocking clearances of the Native American lands by the US federal government from 1781 triggered a crazy movement west. At times, the frontier was literally lawless because nobody had yet set up any machinery of law enforcement. But was it the Wild West? Ever since at least the 1860s, dime novels and stage entertainments and movies have played on the image of the cowboys and their bad man, good man image. Ever since at least the 1890s, American writers and politicians and presidents have used the image of the Wild West to create the notion of an American people. Well, actually what they call it is an American race that was virile, noble, gun-toting, self-reliant, forged in the deprivations and challenges of the frontier. Problem is that many historians have argued that the Wild West never existed. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. In popular memory, the Wild West was exactly that, wild. But a number of historians have argued that this was largely a myth often invented for commercial or political reasons. In actual fact, they say, the settlers on the American frontier in the second half of the 19th century were peaceful, not to say gentlemanly, farmers who could happily settle a land dispute on the toss of a coin and the shake of hands. The deaths of hundreds in violence and shootouts has been greatly exaggerated, if not invented altogether. So was the West wild or not? The problem is that all is not quite what it seems in the way the historians of the American frontier have written the story. Welcome to a world of smoke and mirrors. Gun smoke and mirrors. Let's take to start with an article called The Not-So-Wild Wild West by Terry Anderson and P.J. Hill. It's been reprinted several times since it turned up as a book, in fact. Put in Wild West into your search engine and it soon turns up. Well... Anderson and Hill argue that frontier society was really quite extraordinary. I mean, amazingly orderly and well-run. The key, according to these authors, was that the frontiersmen set up all kinds of organisations. One typical land club, they quote, set up by settlers in Iowa, had a president, a vice president, a clerk, seven judges and two elected marshals. Its constitution laid down rules about property ownership and improvement and set out how anyone who broke its rules was to be boycotted by the whole community. According to Anderson and Hill, cattlemen's associations had similar structures, though they admitted that cattlemen were more inclined to use hired guns to keep order. According to Anderson and Hill, gold prospectors organised themselves into associations even before setting out for the gold fields. If too many other prospectors turned up, the initial prospectors would simply call a mass meeting. In fact, they describe one such meeting in June 1859 at Gregory Gulch in Colorado. An observer 25 years later wrote that the meeting elected a committee to draft laws. They drew up boundaries and, quotes, their civil code after some discussion and amendment was unanimously adopted in another mass meeting. 
The example was rapidly followed in other districts and the whole territory was soon divided between a score of local sovereignties, end of quote. Some areas were even so civilised as to ban lawyers and all the trouble they cause. According to Anderson and Hill, wagon trains travelling out west did much the same. They were little republics. They set up their own constitutions, systems of voting and systems for sharing resources. They even had their own system for trials by jury. Well, that all seems really astonishingly polite and orderly, not the Wild West at all. In fact, conclude Anderson and Hill, the trouble only ever started when the government moved in. It would have been much better, they say, if only they'd left people alone. Uh-huh. Now, just a moment. There's a clue here that there's more to this paper by Anderson and Hill than meets the eye. You see, when you check, you discover it was first written by Terry Anderson when he was a fellow of the Hoover Institution. Now, the Hoover Institution is part of Stanford University, and no doubt it does great work. But it was set up originally in 1959 by Herbert Hoover, the president at the time of the Wall Street crash. He was the man, you remember, who proceeded to make a financial crisis a hundred times worse by a policy of austerity. And later, as the presidential election approached, of course, by pouring state money into private enterprises, a policy quickly and mercifully overturned by Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. But of course, Hoover was a Republican, and therefore he had a theological belief in the virtue of free enterprise and free markets. In fact, he founded his institution specifically, he said, to support research into, quote, personal freedom and into, quote, private enterprise from which springs initiative and ingenuity. The institution's present director is Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State to Republican President George W. Bush and foreign policy advisor to his father. Now, this, of course, changes everything. In fact, if you read the other half of Anderson's paper, you discover that what he's writing is not a simple historical account of the Wild West, but a sustained argument for an extraordinary theory called anarcho-capitalism. If you are an anarcho-capitalist, you believe that the world would be a perfect place if you just got rid of all government. All you have to do is to let everybody get on and make as much money as they can, however they want to. Hallelujah! Free markets. Everyone will be happy. Anderson makes no secret about it. He seriously believes that if you do away with all formal government, then people will simply, as if by magic, organise themselves. And then, to borrow the words of that wise philosopher John Lennon, everything in every way gets better and better. We have concluded Anderson Hill in a note of undisguised and happy triumph, presented evidence that anarcho-capitalism was viable on the frontier. Well, maybe. Now, historians in search of proving a theory, like it seemed Terry Anderson was for the Hoover Institute, are very welcome at the History Café. But we are inclined to ask them to sit at a table on their own, wearing a large label. Theories need, shall we say, a good dash of real evidence before we can be asked to sign up to them. Anderson himself, in fact, admits it. If, he says, this anarcho-capitalism ever worked on the frontier, it, well, it only did so because people were, in theory, free to leave if they didn't like it. Well, of course, the theory's all very well. Problem is, you've already spotted it, that in practice people are never free to get up and just leave if they don't like it. They don't have the money or the contacts or anywhere to go. It's the crushing flaw in every so-called free market system. It's only free for the people who run it and make a profit from it. It was identified by the English philosopher, friend of Isaac Newton's, John Locke, in his second Treaty of Government 
back in 1691. So the system doesn't work if, for example, the locally elected council turns out to be run by some gang of bullies who use it to enrich themselves. Sort of chumocracy, you mean? Yeah, like the big cattle ranchers who hired gunmen to create and keep their monopoly and ended up sparking feuds, like the Texan Wars we talked about last time. Of course, wagon trains or isolated mining communities, like ships at sea, did have to draw up some kind of agreement about keeping order. Miners and also wagon trains often organised themselves before setting out, largely, in fact, because they had to raise finance, rather like a joint stock company. But that's not to say that in practice these organisations worked or that they dispensed justice. As the historian David Langham has pointed out, quote, these ordinances or constitutions may be of interest as guides to pioneers' philosophies about law and social organisation, but they do not help answer the more essential question of how, in fact, not in theory, did the overland pioneer face problems of social disorder, crime and private conflict. We are, as you might say, back to square one. What actually happened in the so-called Wild West? Well, last time, back time we heard some stories, I think. Last time we heard a number of stories from Eugene Holland's much-quoted book Frontier Violence Another Look. Holland's account appears to show that the Wild West was all much more law-abiding than popularly believed. Take 15,000 hopeful homesteaders, he says, remember from last time? Set them off at an agreed time in the morning and literally by the evening you've created Guthrie, Oklahoma, a settled community of 15,000 little farms. But Holland's book is also a curious piece of work. It's only really the much-quoted final chapter that tries to argue that the frontier was orderly, even boring. As one reviewer put it, throughout much of the story, Holland reports lynchings, unbridled aggression and mass murder. And then, despite all of the evidence which his book presents to the contrary, he confidently maintains that, quotes, violence in America has traditionally been an urban rather than a frontier problem. Well, the reviewer has a point. It's all very confusing. In an earlier chapter, Holland wrote, without a gun hanging low on his hip, a visiting cowboy would have felt half naked as he swaggered down the streets of Dodge City, Kansas during its heyday as a cattle town. Well, as we saw last time, factually, Holland is wrong in just about every detail. More recent research has shown that murders were rare in Dodge City and guns had to be and were handed in when you arrived. But nonetheless, Holland argues that the six-shooter became the great equaliser. And then he concludes that the Wild West wasn't wild at all. So the scratching sound you can hear is us scratching our heads. What we desperately need is some kind of hard evidence. And by that we mean statistical, rather than all this anecdotal stuff. How much violence was there on the American frontier? Was it everywhere? Or only in some places and sometimes? And if so, why? Many historians have claimed that the Wild West was largely a fiction. A story got up to sell dime novels and tourist destinations. The expanding western frontier was, they argued, orderly and peaceable, not to say boring. The problem is that their evidence seems to be either too much theory or too much anecdote. What we need is some statistics. But when it comes to the Wild West, proper hard evidence has been a long time coming. 
For years, Wild West historians conducted an argument over crime rates. They specifically listed the number of homicides per year per 100,000 population, because that's the measure modern police use. Historian Roger McGrath claimed, therefore, that the homicide rate in Bodie, a Californian mining settlement between 1878 and 1882, was 116 per 100,000 per year. In the USA's most violent city, when McGrath was writing, Miami, it was just 32. Historian Claire McKenna calculated the homicide rate for one county in Arizona between 1880 and 1884 was 152. John Bursamaker put Los Angeles County between 1850 and 1851 at 1,240. Well, that's roughly 39 times as dangerous as modern-day Miami. Well, that looks like game set and statistically rock-solid proof the Wild West was wild. But no, hang on a moment. These figures suffer from the most basic statistical flaw, page one of the statistical manual. Which you keep by your bed. So, so basic, it's embarrassing. As historian Robert Dixter has repeatedly pointed out, it's very easy to check these places out in the census. Just a minute now. Bodie, the town McGrath was looking at, was a town of just 5,000 people. Los Angeles County was half of that. Uh, McCann's County in Arizona was half that again. These are small communities. In fact, they're tiny. So one murder more or less a year would send the homicide rate rocketing up or down. Miami, at the time these statistics were calculated, was about 350,000. Well, you just can't compare a place of 1,000 with one of 350,000. The actual murder rate in Bodie between 1878 and 82 averaged 4.8 a year. That's pretty serious, but it doesn't get us anywhere to say that it was four times as bad as modern Miami. The figures in these frontier settlements are far too small to be compared in a statistical way. It's as basic as that. If we're going to get a measure of how violent these places were, we need to be much cleverer with our historical evidence than this. So where can we start? Well, one group of frontiers people we can definitely get a statistical handle on is the homesteaders. These were the kind of guys who, according to Holland, peacefully sorted out land allocations in Guthrie, Oklahoma, that one day in 1889, often just on the toss of a coin. In 1862, Abram Lincoln signed the Homestead Act. It set out that you could claim 160 acres of public land on the frontier for an administrative fee of $14. If you ploughed 10 acres, built a house and resided for five years, the land was yours. All you needed to do was to provide witnesses to verify that you'd fulfilled these requirements and you received your certificate. It was called proving up. It was neither the first nor the last act of its kind, and its provisions evolved over time. But the Homestead Act was the heart of a system that lasted from 1830 until the last homestead had proved up in 1988. Now, since at least the 1940s, the homesteaders have been ridiculed by historians. Homesteading only applied, they claimed, to a tiny proportion of the land. Most homesteaders quit without ever getting as far as proving up, getting their certificates. Those who stayed mainly did so by corrupting local officials, or because they themselves were secretly a front for some big corporation. Homesteading was just another wild and corrupt part of the Wild West, the historians said. In fact, because of all that, it's been written out of most American school textbooks. Now, if ever there was a subject crying out for statistical analysis, with enormous mountains of documentation to examine, all, all those, those certificates, all those proving up certificates, this is it. Literally hundreds of thousands of certificates. But it wasn't until 2017 that Richard Edwards, Jacob Freefeld, 
and Rebecca Wingo produced a full-dress statistical study of the homesteaders. And what do they discover? Well, in the 17 states for which there was significant land for homesteaders, they accounted for 64%, about two-thirds of the increase in farms. In Colorado, it was 87%. Washington State, 97%. Almost all of it. Overall, about a third of the land in these 17 western states was opened up by homesteading. So this was anything but negligible. In fact, it's been calculated that between 20 and 40% of all Americans are descended from homesteaders. Somewhere between a half and two thirds of all homesteaders proved up, depending on how you calculated it. Fraud, in fact, was very rare. Edwards and his team reckoned that less than 10% of all contracts even looked suspicious in any way. Homesteaders really were what they seemed, little guys out to make a living from a few acres. They were categorically not a front for big corrupt corporations. They weren't fly-by-night, easily discouraged no-hopers. These were the guys who settled most of the frontier. Edward's study and several others have shown that there was a small number of black homesteaders, mostly gathered in small black communities like Nicodemus, Kansas. But 10-12% to of homesteaders were women. In contrast to the movie stereotypes of harlots and reluctant wives dragged out west, these studies show that many were professional women who took homesteads and hired labour for extra income. Others were farmers' daughters who took adjoining claims in order to extend the family holdings. Makes sense. Many were widows or became widows before proving up getting their certificates and were helped to complete the process by their neighbours. In fact, by examining and comparing the witnesses to the proving up process, Edwards and his team were able to map the peaceful formation of stable frontier communities. They showed that Central European immigrants, about 10% of the total, often stuck together. But everyone else made societies that included people from all kinds of backgrounds. According to some studies, local leaders emerged over time, usually men in their 30s. But other studies have shown that women were also extremely active, establishing community associations and taking a leading part in local politics. It's no accident that the first place in the world to give women the vote was Wyoming in 1869 didn't get it here to 1918. What all this confirms is that when you actually crunch the numbers, you find what most observers on the ground always said. Homesteading was the driving force behind the settlement of the American West. It was hard work and orderly, but it was most definitely not the Wild West. Now, nobody was saying it was a bed of roses. It was a hard, sometimes grim way of life. Historian Cheryl Patterson Black has collected profoundly impressive stories, for example, of the women's life. Here's one witness. Mother herded cattle all day long in the broiling hot sun, so the children could attend a 4th of July celebration in a nearby community. The next morning, around 2am, I was born. No doctor, no nurse, no midwife, just mother and God. Mother in this case, which comes from the 1880s, was Mary O'Keefe. She deserted her useless husband on the Missouri, fixed up a cover for their farm wagon, loaded two dozen hens aboard, tied her milk cattle alongside and trekked 500 miles with her older children in 51 days. And there she'd built a sod house, sunk a well and stayed. Impressive stuff. So a clear majority of those who went west were sober homesteaders. They were definitely not a bunch of wild six-shooting cowboys. But nor is theirs the whole story. Once we put all the wild storytelling on one side and start to pin down some sober statistics, 
we start to get the Wild West in some perspective. Many, in fact a majority of the people who went west in America were homesteaders. They were men and women, black and white, and they led a quiet, orderly, tough existence. We can be quite certain that they were definitely not the Wild West. But nor were they the only people there. The Wild West, in fact, consisted of a number of clearly different kinds of community. Cattle ranching, mining, or setting up a cabin by a river and prospecting for gold were very different from homesteading. You remember Charlie Hester, whom we met at the start of our first discussion, riding into Abilene, Texas, and meeting Wild Bill Hickok the Marshal? He was 18, and he described himself as a cowpoke, a puncher, or a waddy. But they were all words for what we now call a cowboy. Now, cattle ranching was an entirely different business from homesteading. It was often organised over vast areas by big-scale planters. It meant herding hundreds, later thousands, of cattle and then walking them over hordes of miles of poorly defined trail, including fording dangerous rivers and fending off the attentions of the wild buffalo. Cattle ranching demanded an entirely different set of skills and an entirely different kind of workforce from family farming 160 arid acres. It needed young bloods like 18-year-old Charlie Hester. So too, obviously, did setting up a cabin by a river, defining your little pitch and prospecting for gold. The point is that the American West was never one single entity. It was at least three entirely different kinds of community, four if you count the railheads like Abilene and Dodge City. Now, historians of the Wild West, not to speak of dime novels and movie makers and presidents and others, have often ignored this of different communities. They've made broad brush claims about the whole western frontier as if it were one big phenomenon. But let's look at this a bit more closely. Take a book like Frank Purcell's Western Peace Officer. We looked at it in our last discussion. Purcell wants to argue that the West was largely orderly. Most citizens, he wrote, lived peacefully and without great fear of personal attack. The cowboy's revolver, when worn, proved far more useful against snakes than rustlers. OK, but let's just read a little between the lines of Purcell's book. What we discover is that the crime rates in different kinds of communities were not the same. The early settlements of the frontier, concludes Purcell, quotes, while small and isolated, usually demonstrated public peace and order. It was, however, in the towns that you found the saloons and the brothels. Here the trouble was often caused by, quotes, women, liquor, gambling and firearms. I think he means the violence was over the women. Not caused by them. Mm-hmm. But not all towns were the same either. Many, such as Virginia City, Nevada or Salt Lake City, were quiet. It was, for example, the mining settlements that were disorderly. Tiny Leadville, Colorado, reports Purcell, unbelievably had 100 brothels for every 148 residents. How does that work? And in 1880, the local Leadville police reported an astonishing 4,320 arrests. What? And as we saw last time, things could also be bad in some years in the towns that were on the cattle trails like Abilene and Dodge City. There was trouble outside the towns too, but the famous feuds and so-called wars mostly also were something to do with cattle ranching. Now, of course, there's an obvious pattern here. Way back in 1989, a historian called Walter Nugent pointed out that there were two quite distinct kinds of community in frontier regions. In fact, he was writing about frontiers in general, including not only the American West, but also those, for example, in 19th century Brazil or Argentina. Type 1 has families, a spread of ages, a high birth rate. Type 2 is mostly unmarried, younger men. The former 
are, you guess, the farming areas, the wide open spaces where the homesteaders settled. The latter, of course, are the mining and cattle regions and towns. Well, you worked that out already. Now, the 1850 and 1860 censuses show, for example, that Oregon, Utah and Kansas were all farming type one type areas, which had between a half and two thirds men, something over half of them in the age range 15 to 44. By contrast, type two were mining and ranching areas like California and Colorado, and they have over 90 percent men and over nine out of 10 of them were in the 15 to 44 age bracket. Almost everyone in these places, in fact, were men in their late teens, 20s or 30s. They were lads, like Charlie Hester. Nugent draws the obvious conclusion. Vigilantes, shootouts, homicides, rapes, fights over mining claims and grazing rights, prostitution and other social ills for which the early American West is so famous, were, he says, the products of the relatively few, the young males who populated Type 2 frontiers. That, after all, was where society was statistically much younger and much more male. Now, if you know anything about the statistics of crime, this is just stating the blindingly obvious. As two historians of crime, Stefan Meyer and Streifel, state with some feeling, quotes two of the oldest and most widely accepted conclusions in criminology are that involvement in crime diminishes with age and that males are more likely than females to offend. In other words, crimes were almost all committed by young men around Charlie Hester's age. It's a pattern that's been traced back in England to the 13th century. So the American West wasn't just the Wild West. It was several completely different types of community. Most of the frontier was law-abiding, because most of its communities were hard-working collections of sensible, homesteading families. There you would have found men, women and children with a reasonably broad spread of ages, even if they were still a bit younger than most communities at that time in Europe. But on the cattle ranches and trails, and in the mines and prospecting sites, almost all of the inhabitants were young guns exactly like 18-year-old Charlie Hester. So it was no wonder that here there was much more crime. Of course there was. The same pattern of disorder in mining and frontier areas has been traced in communities from the 18th century coal mines at Kingswood near Bristol in England to the gold mines of Ghana or Johannesburg to the frontiers of New Zealand and Australia, the Brazilian plateau, the Argentinian plains, the wildlands of Russia, the uplands of southwest China and no doubt many other places as well. So of course there was violence in some parts of the Wild West. It wasn't that the West was especially wild. It's simply one of the best recognised facts of criminological life that where you get a lot of young men together, there you always get more crime. The mystery of the Wild West, chewed over for years by historians without much agreement, turns out to be no real mystery at all. What historians of frontier regions all over the world have discovered is that frontiers are occupied by a series of very contrasting communities. Many are based on families, but some, particularly mining and ranching, are peopled mainly by young men. And what every criminologist in the world knows is that where you have a bunch of young guys, there you will always have violence and crime. So the American West was wild in parts, and that makes it no different from anywhere else in the world. But actually, America was a special case. 
Historian David Courtright points out that in America's case, this pattern of violent young men extends well beyond the Wild West. America was for centuries a young male and therefore, in certain places at least, a violent society. Courtright called his book Violent Land, Single Men and Social Disorder from the Frontier to the Inner City. And the clue is in the title. Then he points out that the American population, partly because of constant immigration, has historically always been peculiar. It's always had an unusually high proportion of young men. In the period of the westward expansion, 19th century, the American population was noticeably also younger than other countries. In 1800, the median age, that's the age at which half the population is older, in America was just 16. In Sweden at that time, for example, it was 26. In England and Wales, it was 22. By 1900, the US had almost caught up, but there were still more men than women. And that went on until 1946. Now, it's hard to think of any other modern society where that would be true. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, America was therefore more prone to violence, at least in certain places. Not because it was a frontier society expanding westwards, but because it had more young men than any comparable place. In fact, in every study of American history, looking as far back as 1636, it turns out that American men committed more crime than American women. Drunkenness, assault, property crime, murder. Young American males had less to do with religion. They drank hard in places that commercialised vice. Courtright, writing in 1996, points out young American men are still, statistically, among the most dangerous people on earth. A tradition of violent mobs, for example, goes back to the South Carolina's regulator movement in the 1760s. In the three decades after 1830, over 1,000 lives were lost to American mobs. Mobs targeted Catholics, Irish, Mormons, abolitionists. In 1834 in Boston, which was about as far from the Western frontier as you can get, a mob burned down a nunnery. Well, not long after, just along the eastern coast in Philadelphia, rival fire crews were fighting pitched battles in alliance with street gangs. The fire crews eventually resorted to arson, setting fire to things in search of business. In Philadelphia from the 1870s, there was a spate of kidnappings for ransom. These vigilante mobs also flourished in the southeast, where, of course, after the Civil War, they gave birth to the Ku Klux Klan. From the mid-19th century, the violence slowly subsided in the American towns. More regular work, and perhaps better policing in some places, played their parts, along with more education and the burgeoning temperance movement. After all, as the historian Roger Lane Riley remarks, usually, quote, violence came in bottles. But America remained a young, male-dominated and therefore violent society until the Second World War. And the same pattern of young male violence has been increasing again since the 1960s. Now things are falling into place. Certain parts of 19th century and early 20th century America were wild, or to put it less romantically, they were corrupt and violently homicidal. Not because men were doing the manly thing of taming wild lands and beasts and bravely conquering the continent for America. It was because the states had a young, predominantly male society, and like young men everywhere, they were always getting into fights. It was true of certain parts of the West, but it was also true in plenty of other parts of America as well. So now we understand why a few notorious trouble spots on the American frontier, like Dodge City and Deadwood and, and Tombstone, 
so easily caught the imagination of an entire nation. Until the 1970s, the lone cowboy was portrayed as the typical American. It wasn't because many Americans were actually like him. The lone cowboy came to represent the American because so many young male Americans, wherever they happened to find themselves, were given to a certain kind of immature, testosterone-fed, alcohol-fueled, gun-assisted violence. And certain publishers and entertainers and movie makers and other powerful commercial and political interests realised, therefore, that there was money to be made from this violent image and the grip it had on the young male American imagination. More important, faced with one of the most violent societies in the developed world, the myth of the Wild West grew and flourished because it served to solve American consciences about the rampant violence in certain parts of their societies. The myth said the violence was okay. Oh, we're a frontier society. You have to look after yourself. Let's not talk about the ethnic cleansing of the Native Americans and enslavement of black people. Let's not talk either about the sensible families who rolled up their sleeves and worked all day, every day, to build law-abiding communities. Let's not recognise that this is just a young male thing, common to the whole of the rest of the world, if a lot worse in America because of the guns. No, the mythical Wild West tells us it's okay to be childish and violent, especially with a gun, because that's how America was made. So the myth of the Wild West stuck. As the American historian and sociologist Richard Slotkin wrote, it's a myth Americans have yet to outgrow. What's noticeable is that in the 1970s, the cowboy and his myth rather suddenly fell out of fashion on the TV and movie screens. Richard Slotkin puts forward an intriguing thesis for this in his book Fatal Environment, which he published in 1985. Now, Slotkin argues that American fighting in Vietnam which has stretched from 1964 to 73, had often been described as if it were a frontier war against Indian territory. But you see, the problem was the Americans had been defeated. Something was returned to at the History Cafe. So the myth that American violence worked, that it was manly and nation-building, no longer really stood up. In fact, it was becoming embarrassing. You remember all that Henry Kissinger stuff from 1972 we heard last time about being a cowboy diplomat? I've always acted alone. Americans admire that enormously. Well, Slotkin says it was already excruciatingly out of date when Kissinger said it. But like the old Western heroes, the myth of the Wild West just won't die. According to movieweb.com, there were rarely more than two or three Westerns a year from 1977 to 2014, and very often fewer. But from 2015 to 2019, the average was nearly six a year. Perhaps it's no coincidence that these were the years in which Donald Trump was elected and right-wing nationalism gathered its forces. One executive vice president of the National Rifle Association has bizarrely tried to defend his organisation by invoking, quote, the atavistic relation between a man and his gun. Meaning? In other words, (laughs) a kind of sort of deep memory that goes back into the mists of time. The gun is, he says, a man's, quote, only defence and food provider. Food provider. Mm, So I suppose (laughs) you go down to the food store with your gun that has, quote, its roots deep in prehistory. It's a justification of deadly violence that has the rest of the world open-mouthed in disbelief. We simply shouldn't accept this kind of nonsense any longer. It's clear from the historical record that American gun violence was never rooted in anything atavistic. It appeared through the sustained commercial exploitation of certain lawless corners of young male American society. 
These were short-lived, highly defined microcosms that were difficult to contain at a particular moment in American state formation. America was built by better than this. It was peaceful homesteading families who were the driving force behind most of the settlement of the American West. For too long, Americans have been told that they are unique and privileged peoples and that they should be proud of their violent heritage. Well, hi-yo silver to that. You've been taken for a ride. History tells a different story. It's time, Mr Trump, to grow up. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. Pod.